0: I'm Boyan Fierst and you are listening to Rural Roots, a Harris Centre show that asks what is rural in the 21st century? For this episode, I'm in the studio here at the Signal Hill campus of Memorial University with John Scoulton, Canada Research Chair in Social Enterprise at the Faculty of Business, and Kimberly Oren, Director of Fishing for Success, a social enterprise based in Petty Harbor, about half an hour south of St. John's. Here is what we're going to do today. In November last year, I recorded a public forum the Harris Center and the Faculty of Business organized on Fogo Island to discuss the role of social enterprises in community development. That was a culmination of several years of research looking at the Shorefast Foundation on Fogo Island. The panelists on that forum were Natalie Slavinsky and Blair Windsor, your colleagues, John, at the Faculty of Business, and Diane Hodgins from Shorefast Foundation. The moderator of that session was Dr. Rob Greenwood, Executive Director of Public Engagement, and the director of the Harris Center here at Memorial University. I'm going to play the first clip for you that gives us some basic definitions to work with, and then maybe we can have conversations about what we hear.
1: We have to go all the way back to about 2010 when I first started my position at Memorial. And um, I was doing research at that time on uh, corporations and how they relate to uh, social and environmental issues. And um, I started to become a little disillusioned through that research. I realized that large corporations have a lot of structural barriers to uh, being able to um, you know, engage in a meaningful way and contribute to society. And around that time, I started to pay attention to social enterprise as a different way of organizing. Of course, social enterprises, as many of you know, are organizations that uh, have a social mission and they use business tools to achieve those social missions. And um, around that time, I also learned of ShoreFast here on Fogo Island, and I became really, really intrigued by what was happening here. It felt very different. It felt uh, it felt very counterintuitive it was uh, it was the the goal here of course was to reverse the relationship that oftentimes you know uh, society is serving business and along comes Shorefast and they start talking about how uh, business needs to serve society and that I mean that captured my imagination in ways that I can't fully explain but I, I needed to get at the bottom of this I, I wanted to follow what what is this model what is Shorefast trying to build here and Um, and the aspirations here were so large. It was so intriguing.
2: Super. So this uh, funny social enterprise word, Blair, (laughs) you apparently (laughs) by various accounts study entrepreneurship. How does a focus on social enterprise inform this? What's different? Well, there's a lot of things that are the same in the entrepreneurial world, whether it's social enterprise or entrepreneurship. You still have to have the, the people with the ideas you still have to have some money or resources of one kind or another. The differences I think are probably more interesting uh, particularly for this audience and I'll just pick on maybe three big differences. If you look at the stereotypical Silicon Valley startup they tend to be technology-based, they tend to be scalable uh, along one axis which is uh, make the enterprise bigger, employ more people, Uh, make millions of dollars. And the, the third uh, part of that, uh, that, that uh, stereotype from Silicon Valley is the idea of creative destruction. So their business models are designed around, um, well, surpassing or in fact destroying a pre-existing business model. So if you think of Uber Mm. and the normal taxi business, or you think of Airbnb and the hotel business. If you look at social enterprise along those three lines, well, social enterprise may not be scalable in the same way. They may, the idea of social enterprise may be quite scalable across rural communities for example in Newfoundland, but they're not necessarily looking at the bottom line or to employ millions of people or thousands of people and take over the world in that way If you look at the technology-driven nature of a Silicon Valley versus a social enterprise, they're often not, they may be, technology may be an enabler, but it isn't what's usually driving them. And the creative destruction is largely absent. Mm -hmm. So most of them will be more interested in actually working with community, environment, being sustainable. So the, the, while they're very creative or innovative in their, in some of their business models, like Shorefast, it's it's not there to um, destroy other business models.
0: Um, I love that uh, I love that we can hear the baby crying in the background. The future, <laughs> the, the future of Fog Island, Kimberly, you run a social enterprise uh, of a different kind. What Natalie and uh, and Blair said, does that uh, does that ring the bell? Does it ring true?
3: It does ring true, but I'd like to flip it upside down a little bit and approach it not from the end of a new business model, but flip it and think about it as a new charity model. Because if you think about um, this being a new charity model, um, many social enterprises start out as being uh, wanting to do the work that we traditionally think of as work that a charity might do. But um, maybe you can't get the grants, or can't find the grants, um, or maybe you don't want to spend the money and the time and the resources and the investment writing grants. Sometimes you can spend lots of time and money and resources writing grants, and then you don't get the grants. And for startup charities, that's a huge waste. Um, so. Then you also are trying and chasing um, other funders' um, missions and not your charity's mission. So you have this mission drift. Um, so so what do you do if you're a startup nonprofit or charity and you need some money to do the, that social good work? So, Social enterprise. You develop a product or a service that you could um, sell, get some revenue to do that good work that you want to do. And so I come at it from the end of thinking about uh, a new charity model, maybe.
0: John, those are some of the definitions we heard. But there are different models out there. Uh, What are you seeing as you are doing research, not just on ShoreFast, but on other social enterprises? How do they structure themselves that kind of lends
4: itself to fulfilling their mission? Many of them in rural Newfoundland simply structure themselves as small businesses it may be one person, or a mom and pop kind of an operation, that uh, is running an inn or, or doing something like that, and uh, they're not looking to get rich from it. They're looking to have a decent living, to contribute to their communities, to reinvest in the communities, to buy locally, to hire locally, and, uh, and. That, and and people like that often don't even think of themselves as social entrepreneurs or even as entrepreneurs. Um, but what they're doing is running some kind of an enterprise or a business. They are making some money. They're reinvesting that money in their communities. And in that way, um, they are contributing to the vitality of the community. and. So whether or not um, academically they would be classified as social enterprises makes little difference to me or to them either, probably. Um, They're paying taxes, they are having to, you know, report their profits um, just like any other business, but they're not in the business for the purpose of satisfying investors. Uh, for maximizing profits there in the business to live well among their fellow community members and contribute to the overall well-being of that community.
0: That's really interesting because um, I want to play another clip, and it's Diane Hodgins, and she's talking about what it takes to be a successful social enterprise in a rural setting.
5: So I have to admit, when I came to this project, there was a tremendous amount of learning that I had to undertake. I had to rewire my brain around the typical business uh, approach of, you know, focus on the bottom line, maximize the rate of return, figure out how you can measure everything, scale, grow as quickly as possible. So first of all, for, for those of us coming out of that core business world, if when you come into social enterprise, you have to change your mindset. You have to take a whole, uh, a whole thinking approach. So we talk about this cauliflower thinking, about recognizing each community is its own floret uh, in a larger whole. And so when you take an action in a business, it's not just around what's going to happen in that business. When you're looking at social business and community development, you recognize that every action you take in your business affects this nucleus, but it has a much broader ripple effect out into the, the community and out into the world. So I'd say the first mindset that we have to get into from the typical business is instead of focusing inward only, you have to focus outward. And I think that's one of the great advantages that we see in working in smaller places is that you can feel the ripple effect of decisions that you make. Number one is sort of recognizing that the business, uh, all economic or business activity is just part of a broader community that you are embedded in. So you are a player but you are not the lone player, and recognizing everything has this pillow for a peck. Um, The other key resource that uh, was here, that enabled things here on Fogo Island, is a partnership uh, with recognizing other partners, the federal government, the provincial government, and and the university as well. You learn from one another. A business in service of community, people don't really understand what that is. I definitely didn't understand when I first came as well, so, one of the things that we've done uh, very differently here is uh, you know, really a local focus. So, whenever we're looking to purchase something, our buying pattern is if we can buy it on Fogo Island, we buy it on Fogo Island. If, I can't, if we can't buy it here, then we go to Gander. If we can't get it in Gander, we go to other parts of the province, then we move our way across the country, North America and, and around the world. And in no case do we buy anything from places that don't abide by basic environmental and labour standards. And we think that's just part of the practice of recognizing everything that we buy comes from a place that has purpose in what we are buying. And, and we're buying with intent. And we've seen a great spillover effect for that. The other thing that's really critical is you have to have uh, a mass of people that really are interested in making sure that this, whatever you're here to preserve, that you're willing to fight for it. And you have to have people that are interested in telling the story. Uh, if you want to engage with others, you want to get people excited about what you're doing. You have to be able to transfer some of that energy, and I think that's also what's really unique about Newfoundlanders is uh, there's such a warm hospitality uh, just just here, and people have this way of uh, sharing a story, uh, sharing an idea, and that transferring of energy to get people excited about something. That's something that's needed. So y- you need a group of people that are willing to to be part of that energy and to be part of engaging others to see what you see in your community and, and be willing to part be part of that group that's going to fight for that.
0: So Kimberly, <laughs> your social enterprise is very different than what ShoreFast is doing on Fog Island. Can you tell me a little bit about fishing for success?
3: Well, it's about fishing. <laughs> and of course, we believe that fishing's connected to everything. And, um, and just as Diane was speaking there, um, you know, the first word in social enterprise is social. And so that's talking all about connecting people and not just within a community, community, but across communities. And, uh, you know, she talks about storytelling and engaging people in the story of the um, social enterprise. And um, so, you know, those are very different ideas, I think, from what traditional for-profits have done. And um, so that's yeah, that's you know it's just um, it's that social component. It's collaborating to compete. It's not competing. It's um, it's building those links to everyone within the community, whether it's from just the nan and pop across the street to even the other business and. Businesses in the community, whether they're for profit or nonprofits, or reaching out of your community and building links that way, and then commu- uh, continuing the story of what your social mission is by um, trying to uh, engage your partners to join in your mission, uh, to make certain that they're uh, also interested in that sustainability, um, you know, link that you're bringing forward too. Um, you know, Fishing for Success is concerned about um, sustainability of the community, but also about sustainability of, you know, um, our planet and our place in the planet and how our young people fit here and stay here. And uh, so what does that look like? It's, yeah, it's a big question. And we see the ocean as being central to that. And so being in Newfoundland and Labrador, that's that's a primary question.
0: Did you find the community of Petty Harbour receptive to what you're doing?
3: Yes, absolutely. Um, we have a, a lot of support from individuals, from businesses, from uh, the town. We're actually written in the town plan, and um, so it's. And we and we've spread out. We're just uh, 20 minutes south of Saint John's, and so we have quite a few partners in Saint John's from. Thrive and Choices for Youth to First Light to Food First, because of course fish is food, and um, so it's uh, it's pretty exciting. And we've actually had some reach around the world. A small short film that was created by some volunteers for Fishing for Success did a um, a little short documentary about our Girls Who Fish program, and that has reached uh, an international audience. And so we're very excited about that. So story of fishing is a, a shared human story and so it's touched a lot of people.
0: Okay, before I get back to you let me play another clip. This one comes from Natalie Slavinsky and she talks about the four lessons your team learned working on Fogo Island.
1: The first learning is uh, knowing how to honor place and Honouring place requires seeing the value in your place and understanding that um, to see the value in your place, sometimes you need outsiders to come in and help you see what is valuable about your place. Community champions have a really big role to play in honoring not only honouring place but also um, uh, mediating the relationship between insiders and outsiders in a community because when outsiders come in, they bring skills, they bring resources, And they help you see your place uh, in in unique ways that you may not have in in which you may not have seen it. Um, However, the local residents uh, bring so much value because they have they hold the local knowledge, and um, it's important to have people in a community who can recognize the value of both local knowledge and outside knowledge, and understand how to bring insiders and outsiders together for meaningful exchange and respectful. Dialogue, And so the second learning would be understanding how to bring insiders and outsiders together Mm -hmm. for respectful, meaningful exchange. And then the third learning, and that's directly related to that, is understanding how to manage the tensions that come out of the work that community champions do. Community development, as you all know, is rife with tensions. And so understanding how to manage those tensions is critical. And so one of the learnings from our research here on Fogo Island and watching the Shorefast Foundation or Shorefast over the past number of years has been how they take a both-and approach. What we would call in academia, you know, a paradoxical approach. Understanding that things can be contradictory, but if you can also see the interrelatedness of these contradictory elements, then you can really harness the the energy from that and the possibilities from that and so understanding the both end uh, and knowing how to harness that is sort of a third learning that comes out of that and then the the last one is the power of language and narratives for making change you know um, there's a story on Fogo Island about resilience in the face of adversity. And that story comes out of a history here with the the Fogo process, where this community survived in the face of a lot of adversity. and um, and we saw you know Shorefast sort of pick up on that narrative and introduce it back in. So the narrative already existed. and but it's which narratives do you give prominence to? And which ones do you kind of challenge? Because if you think about rural Newfoundland as a depleted place, then you'll start to believe that. And you'll act on it. And you'll lose hope. And you'll leave rural Newfoundland if you really believe that it offers no future. If, however, you uh, you have a different sort of story about rural Newfoundland, um, that's what's going to shape you know if you if you shape a, if you have a mind if you can shape attitudes and mindsets to be uh, more hopeful and provide a story that's more compelling and positive this is what people are going to gather around those stories and they will enact them they will make them happen they become in other words stories become self-fulfilling prophecies and so we have to think carefully about which stories we want to tell
0: John you're part of that research team as a researcher Your team went a step further from the time we recorded this in Fogo Island, and you developed a model that other communities can kind of look at as a framework of how they could introduce social enterprise as part of the mix of a well-developed community. Can you tell me a little bit about that that framework?
4: I can. Um, What we're calling a model is basically an acronym Uh, that forms the word place and the the word itself is important because we give place primacy in Newfoundland Um, you have to love the place you are in order to find the energy to improve it. Um, The people that initially summon that energy uh, they, they give us the P from place and that stands for promote community champions. Uh, Diane Hodgins talks about people who drive social enterprise because they have an unwavering belief in a way forward. They don't let obstacles stop them. They find a way over or around those obstacles. And community champions are people that have that belief in a way forward. Um, But it's not just that you have to have community champions. You need to recruit new ones. And so um, Kimberly here is a community champion in Petty Harbor, but she is sounding her, her battle cry, if you want to call it that, or uh, her clarion call of getting people on the water and fishing and talking to each other and talking to their elders and honoring and reliving and recreating their own their own history and traditions, That's, she's recruiting or promoting that, uh, that attitude among young people that have worked for her, that have been her interns and student helpers. And they're going out and they are becoming champions in their own rights. Um, so you promote this, this idea of championing the place that you're from. The L stands for Linking Insiders and Outsiders, Natalie made a point of how it's important to bring fresh perspectives into a community. Sometimes someone coming from the outside sees great value in something that I as a member of the community from childhood may take completely for granted. Um, But then I as a person who have been in a community from childhood also know and appreciate things about the community that an outsider can't can't appreciate or can't automatically understand and so those two viewpoints working together can move a community in fresh new directions that still remain anchored in the values and traditions that gave the community its identity in the first place. The A stands for assessing the capacities that the community has. And one of the things that you'll find in any community, a rural community, is that there are certain capacities, whether they are institutional or material, infrastructural, that are underutilized. It may be the knowledge and the wisdom of the old people. Well that's an incredible capacity that is available to be tapped as long as someone is willing and able to to talk to those people and, and hear their stories. Um, it may be a snow plow that's sitting idle because the local streets have been plowed but maybe you know the streets in the next town over or, or some long driveways or something else also need to be plowed and maybe that snow plow can be used more fully. Maybe it's an empty building. A church or a school that's been decommissioned but has a kitchen that can be made commercially, um, you know, a commercial kitchen. What can you do with a commercial kitchen? What can you do with all those extra rooms and bathrooms and everything else that a school has? So identifying where there are underutilized capacities in a community is is an important part of finding new ways to use those things to uh, to, to serve new purposes. The uh, I'm, I talked about one of the capacities being the knowledge of elders. The, the C in place stands for convey compelling narratives and that just means basically telling better stories. Telling positive stories that can counteract the negative stories that that tend to get rooted um, over time. And, uh, and where do those stories come from? They come from understanding our history they come from seeing the potential in a place that uh, that may have been ignored for for years and years and then the final letter of the uh, of the acronym the e stands for engage both and thinking and that's just a way of saying that we don't want to settle for one thing or another at the expense of the other we don't want to drive profitability at the expense of the environment or we don't want to maximize our profits at the expense of paying, you know, sub-living wages to to people who work for us. We want to be able to pay a living wage. We want to help the people in our community have good products, good services, good jobs and still have enough profitability that we can live well and reinvest in what we're doing, and so that's an example of both-and thinking. Let's not let's not go all one direction or another when, when in fact uh, we can do all of it if we just look for a third way forward.
0: Kimberly, I wanted to ask you about that concept of telling a better story because your social enterprise, Fishing for Success, is all about telling that story and passing it on. Mm-hmm. Did you do that consciously?
3: Um, did I do that consciously? Uh, well, I think that comes from my background as a teacher. You've got to engage young people in stories. And so even if I was teaching chemistry or teaching physics, I had to come to the classroom with stories. It's sometimes it's a little difficult to come up with stories about physics or chemistry. But uh, but you've got to do it, because you've got to grab someone's attention. And it's the same thing with fishing. And, you know, that story might have been about how I was um, grabbed by fishing and, um, you know, I remember my first fish and it's, um, I was eight years old and I was uh, on a pond outside of Grand Falls and there was some guy, don't even know him, wasn't related to him, and I just said, hey, what are you doing? He says, fishing and i could just tell he was really annoyed some kid up there bugging him and i just said well uh can can you teach me and he's like kid (laughs) and i just kept up what are you doing can you teach me how to fish and uh, so anyway he said go over there and get a branch off that tree And and he told me to pull the side branches off the bigger branch and i did that then he tied a little string to it and put a hook on it, and I caught a mud trout, and then that was it. Nobody was safe from me then. Anybody who knew how to ice fish, they had to take me ice fishing, so my neighbor had to take me ice fishing. And then we had, um, my family had a little... Uh, house in leading tickles, which is on Notre Dame Bay, um, just about an hour and a half north of Grand Falls. And so then that was it. I was a wharf rat hanging around the wharf, gutting fish and cutting out cod tongues, asking the fishermen, What's this part? Is this a girl fish or a boy fish? Where'd you find this fish? What kind of fish is this? And you know the the fishermen and um, and the women uh, filleting and gutting the fish answered the questions and uh, and they did because, that's what everyone had always done. This was a natural mentorship program. You knew that the children standing at the table with you, helping to clean the fish, were coming behind you in a, you know, in a, a fishing livelihood that had been going on for generations. And so you answered their questions, and uh, they answered my questions, even though, you know, I, wasn't a community kid, and um, it made an impression on me. Uh, and I learned a lot. I became really interested in science, and, but it the biggest thing it did was it glued me to Newfoundland. And I've always thought about that, and how can we provide those same experiences for children here now who their glue is a smartphone when they spend two to eight hours a day on a smartphone? So. That's what I'm trying to do with that little place out in Petty Harbors, to try to get, try to, try to provide some glue.
0: That's a great story. So. That's a really awesome story. Thank you. Yeah, um, and actually, it's a nice segue into the next clip I want to play for you. And it's the last one. Um, the moderator, Dr. Rob Greenwood, the director of the Hair Center, asked Ayan what are some of the lessons that she learned as a community partner on that research project. And this is what she said.
5: The first place to start is really, you need to become your own detective of your community. So uh, the concept of asset-based community development, um, this understanding of what is already there in your community. And the questions that are asked at the beginning phase of this is, what do we know? What do we love? What do we miss? What are we willing to fight for? And once you get a sense of looking at from the what we have versus what we don't have, Then there's a natural energy around that and people start to uh, find a, you know, a bit of pride in it and think, oh, these are all the things. If I could find employment in this and if I could build an energy around it, I'd be really excited and, you know, I could get everybody engaged and I could get everybody on board. I'd say also early, you need to sort of find your tribe. It's difficult work. Uh, Natalie mentioned sort of this tension. There's, it's changed. You know, economic development means you're moving into a new phase. That means you're going to have to shed some of your old ways. Not everything the way it was is going to be. Um, you're going to have to get uncomfortable. Your routines are going to be, you know, moving a little bit. So there's a natural tension in that. Find others that are willing to be part of that, that conversation. I'd also say that it is really hard work to think whole. My, my caution would be, Things do not move as quickly as uh, as you might like. But and that's sort of part, the, the last lesson is I want to talk about collaboration. So you have to stay in the game, stay in the conversation. A lot of the time when you're collaborating, you're creating something new, you're looking at this whole thinking of competing, whether it's competing for personnel or, or dollar resources or picking which project to start with or what to lead with, who gets, uh, who gets left out, don't rush it. And stay in the conversation as long as you can. And as long as we're all committed to staying at the table, there is value in that. And I think rural places, small places, that's already deeply embedded there. You know, specific to Fogo Island, it is an island off the island. People here knew, you know, we fight to stay here long ago, or we all all go. We have a shared common fate. We don't have another option. So what are we going to do? We have to rally together and find a solution. The art of collaboration is just staying in the game and seeking to find some sort of solution, some path. It's not going to be a direct line and I think we're all looking for the direct line. It won't happen that way. You have to know what direction you're roughly going but it won't be a straight path and that's okay. It's hard work, it's frustrating but it's also the most rewarding work that you'll ever do.
0: So, Kimberly. the your social enterprises doesn't have the kind of financial backing that Shorefast started <laughs> with, right? That's an
3: understatement.
0: <laughs> That's an understatement. What is your advice to most of the social enterprises out there in rural Canada and rural Newfoundland that are just like
4: you? Wow. <laughs> huh. Oh.
3: Well, I mean, I say that this is a labor of love, a labor of passion. Um, You know, one of the co-founders of the project is Leo Hearn, and he comes from a long line of fishermen. And so, in fishing, the knowledge of on the water was handed down from father to son to father to son. And Leo does not have a son who's fishing, and so he wonders where's the knowledge that has been handed down for generations going to go. He has no one to hand it down to because his son, when the moratorium was called, his son left for Alberta and is still there and will not be coming home. So Leo feels that he has this wonderful gift, this gem of family knowledge that has been handed down through the line of Ben. And he literally feels like he's holding it in his hands, and he has no one to give it to. So that is a weight that—so he wants to pass it on to anyone who will hear him. For me it was— the fact, and I'm, I'm getting, you know, I'm getting emotional telling the story. You know, I was, um, I am not from a fishing family. I am, my father was the U.S. Navy guy stationed in Argentia who um, fell in love with a Newfoundland girl and, um, and as I mentioned, I found my glue at the wharf, uh, <laughs> um, following fishermen around, amazed at the fish and um, and that glued me to this place and just that childhood of um, roaming Newfoundland and discovering this beautiful um, place and all of that, just, you know, how do, how do we recreate that now? Um, as a high school science teacher, I would bring my kids outside, even if I was teaching chemistry or physics. and. I bring them outside and year after year i began to see that the kids knew less and less about the plants and animals outside and that worried me you know they you know just the time that they're spending on their smartphones and this disconnect from nature and this disconnect from where they live and it's you know it's uh, it's, it's not healthy um you know we're seeing that they our, our kids are experiencing more depression and more mental and physical illness, and it's all connected to that. And I just just felt a calling to teach those things that drew me to science to start with. And that was turning over rocks and gutting fish. Mm
0: -hmm. John, if the advice that Kimberly has is pour your passion and what drives you into the business, from your research, if you are a small social enterprise in a small rural community, what
4: are some of the pitfalls you should be watching for? Well, let me not start with pitfalls. Maybe those will come to mind. Um, let me start instead with answering, in my way, the question you asked Kimberly, and that is what advice would you have for social entrepreneurs or people who want to do business in their community in a way that benefits their community? And I would say begin first with a, an understanding of, do you love this place? And why do you love this place? And then ask yourself, how do you envision this place becoming? Because we all we can all find fault in our communities no matter what they are and we and we we hear the negative stories but if we think about it what we're really wanting out of life and out of a community is we want to live among people who are prosperous who are happy in their lives who are doing things that they find meaningful who wave to each other on the street and help each other out when they have a problem we want to live in the kinds of communities where people value their lives and each other's lives and then you ask okay so how do i get there and what kinds of of uh enterprises uh, what kinds of activities can help build prosperity within our community keep the profits within the community circulating within the community enriching the lives of the people in the community and what that comes down to in many cases is doing your own thing whatever it is the thing you love finding a way to do it better and to share it with people if it's fishing share the fishing teach people how to fish, teach people what it means to uh, to catch a cod sustainably and what it means to use the whole fish, you know. But if it's uh, woodworking or punt building like the, you know, the on Fogo Island, um, there may not be a big market for punts, but there is a market for craftsmanship. And those those old guys that build punts on Fogo Island, they have a level of craftsmanship that they've developed uh, over generations that's extraordinary. Well, they've managed to convert some of that craftsmanship to building very high-end, beautiful furniture. But the point I guess I'm making is, start with, you know, do you love the place? What do you envision it being? And then figure out what is my part in, in really building new capacities in this community to find a way forward that it that that connects us to the bigger world to the global economy perhaps but that keeps us rooted in who we are and what we stand for that's perfect
0: i do have one more question and uh, we over the several episodes we have been exploring this idea that universities have a role to play in all of this that maybe until very recently we didn't see so you're at the university you're very connected to the university in many ways what is that relationship like and what would you like to see it grow into
3: well i'm oftentimes a guest speaker which is a lot of fun and uh so I, i've spoken at the Folklore department, the geography department, and uh, fisheries, and uh, so that's as I said, that's that's great because I love to spread what we're what we're doing around. Um, I'd like to get a better handle on some measurement on our impact and and talk, you know, see more about that because that's that's important, and tweak that a little bit, um, and so I think that's where that help can come from. I'd also like to um, build what we're doing into more of a model so that we could literally just write it down and hand it along to other uh, communities who are trying to save a fishing stage and would like to do something like this during the summer with with their own children. Um, because what we're doing right now is literally, you know, on on our feet, and when we see that something's not working, we change it. And so once we've um, got the kinks worked out, we would literally like to share it.
0: And what does that look like from the other side?
4: Well, I've been a I've been a college professor um, for probably what thirty five years, and. Uh, in, in, in to some extent I'm paid to teach and uh, and teaching to some extent is you know engaging students on a term by term basis and filling their heads with ideas and getting them to ask interesting questions and find ways to answer them. but another part of what I'm paid for is to think and and there's a lot of thinking going on at universities and uh, and y- you know our our reward structures have to do with publishing and pushing ideas in new directions uh, if it's if it's stale thinking that somebody else has already done before, it doesn't get you anywhere, right? And so there's a lot of pretty pretty intense mental activity going on at the university and most of us, within our spheres um, or our disciplines, we love to solve problems, and so taking that thinking and problem-solving sort of attitude and mentality, and then connecting it with real problems, real challenges, um, is extremely gratifying. And uh, I, you know, so to the extent that. And I think Canada does a nice job of this. I'm not Canadian. Uh, I You can probably tell from my accent that I come from a much less enlightened place. But um, Canada supports research and supports engagement with, with communities. And I just deeply appreciate that. Um, and here in Newfoundland, there are a lot of opportunities for us to to hang out with people like Kimberly and learn what they're doing. I, I learn as much from the people that I engage with as a researcher. Um, well, I'm, well, I think I learn more from them than they learn from me. But sometimes I get a chance to give back a little bit of that learning and that's what we're trying to do with this place model, for example. We want to develop tools that are accessible and usable that people can adapt to their own situations and uh, so if we can do that, it'll be, we'll be earning our keep over there on the hill.
0: I'm afraid you're out of time, so thank you both for your time. You just listened to another episode of Rural Roots. To help me understand the role of social enterprises in rural development, I have with me in the studio John Scouton, Canada Research Chair in Social Enterprise at Memorial University's Faculty of Business, and Kimberly Oren director of Fishing for Success, a social enterprise based in Petty Harbor, Newfoundland. We also heard the voices of Natalie Slavinsky and Blair Windsor from Memorial's Faculty of Business and Diane Hodgins from Shorefast Foundation on Fogo Island. Rob Greenwood, director of the Harris Center, moderated that public forum in November last year and I recorded it live. If you'd like to see the entire forum, you can find it on the Harris Centre website. The links to a variety of resources are available in the episode notes. I'm Brian First, and you just listened to another episode of Rural Roots. This show is a partnership between Rural Policy Learning Commons, Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation, and the harris center we record the show at the harris center at the signal hill campus of Memorial university of newfoundland you can find all the previous episodes of the show on your favorite podcasting app or at our website www.ruralrootspodcasts.com that's rural r-o-u-t-e-s podcasts.com you can also find us on National Campus and Community Radio Program Exchange and hear us on community and campus radio stations across the country. If you'd like your station to carry rural roots, just let them know or contact us directly. Until next time.